Hi, this is Michelle Weidenbenner, your Chief Hope Builder. I am the author of Mom's Letting Go Without Giving Up, Seven Steps to Self-Recovery. You can download that for free at momslettinggo.com. Welcome to the podcast that will help you feel at least 15% better. Feel free to join our Facebook private group, Mom's Letting Go, also, and surround yourself with other moms who understand your pain. If you would like to take your journey into a deeper accountability and recovery for yourself, join us at momslettinggo.teachable.com where we have a subscription membership. We have a tribe of moms who are all together in support groups and coaching and we study together and grow together and we are going to write a book together so that we can help other moms come into recovery with hope and determination and a way to find their own identity and recapture their purpose that they lose in the throes of dealing with an addicted loved one. If you find this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave us a review because that's how other moms will be able to find us too. God bless. I met Nate um, years ago because he was um, my son's, oh, I don't know what you call it, staff support, um, you know, when he was in Fort Wayne recovery. And we've kept in touch. Um, and at one point I asked Nate, could I please talk to your mom? <laughs> like <laughs> I just needed a mom group, right? And she was there for me. And then Tommy, I've met his mom. She lives in our community. So um, I've heard, I've seen both um, of your, a little bit of your backstories, but why don't you just share a little bit about um, I think moms would love to know how long you were in addiction and how long you've been working in recovery, something like that. Share something about yourselves. Sure. Go ahead. I'll start. So I'm Nate, uh, Nate Mullering. I am the, currently I am the um, community outreach director at Fort Wayne Recovery in Allendale. Fort Wayne Recovery is our outpatient facility and Allendale is our inpatient. Um, when I met Michelle and her son, I was the center manager for recovery. That was about three years ago. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was in active addiction from about 12 years old to 24. Uh, so about 12 years. Um, so I started probably when I was 12, just kind of drinking alcohol with my friends at friends' houses. Um, I was put on Adderall when I was 12 because they thought that I had ADHD, which turns out I was just a normal kid. Um and uh, so, you know, the Adderall didn't affect me like it would for somebody who had ADHD. So I got, you know, quite the buzz off of it. And quickly I figured out that if I took uh, several days worth and saved them up and then took it, I felt really good. <laughs> so even before I knew exactly what I was doing, I was, uh, I was abusing, you know, prescription medication. Um, so, you know, I, one of my things early on for me was, uh, you know, I always felt like I couldn't live up to my family standards. And that was always a point of shame for me. So I had a lot of shame and guilt growing up. And what I found out was when I took drugs and alcohol into my system, uh, I no longer cared about what anybody else thought or anyone else's expectations. 
Um, and I also figured that if I just decided to start hanging out with people that, you know, drank alcohol, smoked weed and everything like that, that, um, and stopped going to class and stopped doing my homework that I couldn't fail because I chose to fail. Um, so that's really kind of what got me started was it kind of took the pressure off me and made me feel okay about myself for the first time in my life. So fast forward to high school, you know, I played uh, football. I was a decent football player. I ended up having three shoulder surgeries in high school. Um, so I ended up getting prescribed Percocet. Um, so I got addicted to prescription pain medication, um, among other things, you know, throughout high school. Um, my grades were terrible. I was in trouble quite a bit with school, with the law. Um, somehow I managed to piece together a half decent football career. And I got a scholarship to go to the University of St. Francis here in Fort Wayne and play football there. Um, and then I injured myself there and the, the prescription drugs continued. And eventually what happened is, um, you know, they, they, they tightened down on the regulations for prescribing prescription drugs. So it was much harder to get them. I was cut off from my supply and on the street, they were about twice what they used to be, sometimes three times as much marked up. Um, so naturally in about 2012, 2013, I moved to heroin. Um, and then during that time, uh, probably about six months after I started using heroin, I started using it in the needle, injecting it into my arm and other places. And uh, wasn't wasn't long until I was putting every drug that I could get my hands on in a needle. Um, fast forward a little bit, you know, I lost three different football scholarships. I was homeless multiple times, homeless in Indianapolis, homeless in Fort Wayne. Uh, went to probably, gosh, um, I don't know how many rehabs, you know. I went to private places. I went to community mental health places. I went to um, psych places. During I, I was in St. Joe Behavioral three times. Parkview Behavioral once, um, went to multiple detoxes, multiple outpatient programs, was in and out of the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous, Celebrate Recovery, you name it. Um, and then when I was 24, um, you know, that was about 22 is when fentanyl hit the streets pretty hard. And by the time I was 24, I had probably had five or six overdoses, uh, been revived multiple times. And uh, end of, or beginning of 2017, um, a lot of close friends of mine had died of overdoses or suicides or homicides by this point, just because that kind of, this kind of life leads to that at a certain, certain point. And, um, I was living with my ex-girlfriend at the time I was robbing her blind and, uh, you know, my family didn't want me at their house either. They had changed the locks and everything, um, told me if they saw me on property, they would call the police. And I was living in my car, um, and I was able to get back into her house one day and I went in her bathroom and overdosed. They had to smash the door down to get to me. And then I AMA'd from the hospital, left against medical advice, went and got the same drugs again, went back to her house, overdosed a second time in 24 hours. But this time I locked the bedroom door and then the bathroom bedroom door. So they had to smash down two more doors to get to me. It was the same group of uh, first responders and they were just like, what are you doing? <laughs> we were just here, Nate, you know? And, uh, Oh, I was, goodness. I was at, yeah, I was at the point where uh, they said, if you do it a third time, you're not going to make it. And I said, that's fine. So don't come. I said, don't waste your time. Um, and then uh, luckily there was a man who took an interest in me. His name was Mark Gerardo. He was a vice narcotics detective um, here in Fort Wayne. Wow. I've been uh, on the department for multiple, multiple years. And he literally just came in. And if, if you ever hear our story, we did a story together. Um, he'll say that something told him to go to the house that day and he just sat down next to me and he was like tell me what happened 
And I thought he meant like, what happened here? I said, well, you think you know what happened? And he said, no, no, no. He said, I want to know how you got right here to where you're at. And I said, okay. Listen. So yeah, he did. He listened. It was a human moment, you know, and he just put his arm around me and he, you know, and uh, we talked for about two hours and I told him my whole story. And um, that's when he said, you know, Nate, uh, I know someone who I think can help you. And that's when he introduced me to um, one of the owners and co-founders of Fort Wayne Recovery, Mickey Ashpole. Um, and then I, you know, at the time, Fort Wayne Recovery wasn't a thing. Uh, there wasn't much in Fort Wayne as far as treatment or in Indiana or the Midwest in general. Um, so I was on a plane the next day to Florida and I went to a treatment center down there. Um, and, you know, that's, that's where I got into recovery. And then I moved back up here after nine months. Um, and then eventually came full circle and I ended up working uh, with Mickey to open Fort Wayne Recovery. And um, wow. that's, that's, that's history for me. <laughs> what a story. Oh my gosh. Do you know how much hope that brings our moms? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you were in bad shape. I mean, oh my goodness. I, and actually, I can't believe that I had never heard that because I've talked to your mom and sure. I can't, I can't imagine my son coming home to do that two mm -hmm. times, not just once. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, so do you feel like if that detective had come to your house that day, I mean, you, I know you don't really know the answer to that, but if he hadn't come to your house that day and really listened you know, without trying to fix you, without trying to, you know, just from a human point of view, connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you think you would ever be here right now? No. I mean, I think that everything happened the way that it was, you know, meant to happen for a reason. Um, I think things lined up in a way that, um, you know, for a very long time, um, I denied the existence of a higher power and um, looking back on my story after several years I was able to see that everything happened the way that it was supposed to happen um, and you know not everybody's story happens that way and, uh, and again I can't explain why it, it, it was designed to happen that way other than I believe that I was um, spared in order to be able to help others that's really all that I know um, but I do think that he made a huge impact in that moment and it was a turning point for me um, I think part of part of it too was you know, I always tell families and parents and, and loved ones that I went to treatment multiple, multiple times before this. And people say, well, do you consider those failures? No, I just, I believe that um, I learned what didn't work. And every time I went to treatment and I didn't stay sober, um, I still learned something like whether I thought I was soaking it up or not. There was things that to this day that I'll be, I'll be sitting there and I'll pop into my head from a rehab I went to in like 2012. I'll be like, oh, that's what they're talking about. Um, so it really was just a culmination of everything I had learned and all the experiences I had, had had coming to kind of a climax right in that moment and kind of creating almost the perfect storm, if you would. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that because sometimes moms will say, mm -hmm. well, I've already sent him to two. I can't right. afford another one. I can't do this again. Right. And um, I, I never tell a mom what to do. Um, but I usually just ask questions. And how do you know the next time isn't going to be the time? And, yeah, and, you that's, and, you, and we don't, right? We don't. So for me personally, I was going to do it uh, as often as it took. Like I just was going to encourage that 
for our son as, as often as it took, right? Um, so thank you so much, Nate, for, for sharing that story. And, um, you know, for you, it's probably like, yeah, I've told it a million times, no big deal. But to us, um, it's, it's just so much hope, but also you, you tell it so openly. And mm -hmm. I guess the last question would be, at what point in your recovery were you able to, I guess for you, the risk isn't too great because you're already working in recovery, but so many people who are in recovery still won't share because the risk of being judged or the risk of losing their job, mm -hmm. just the risk in general is too great. At what point was the risk worth it for you to, to share that? Well, I mean, it, it became fairly early on for me and mainly because, um, I guess part of it was I wasn't as worried about what would happen to me. I just wanted other people to know that they had somebody that they could talk to that had been where they're at. You know, for me, it was more about um, facing the stigma head on and making others feel comfortable, you know, and knowing that there's people out there who are just like them. Um, that That's really what became important to me, you know, and I guess I've always kind of had the attitude um, and not everybody has this attitude. That's okay. If people don't like me because of it, then that's their problem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's but just you had a I, job. You had a job too, so you weren't like worried that word was going to get out, and you would never get a job either. Well, honestly, I I pretty much pretty early on, even before I was working uh, in this industry, like so my job before this was, you know, my first job in recovery was I was busing tables, and um, I was pretty upfront with my boss at that time, and he understood, and I think part of the reason he gave me a chance was because he knew that I needed some help. Um, and then eventually that job, oddly enough, um, my career before this morphed into private security and then a bounty hunter um, and private security. Um, and I was still open with it at that point. But um, again, it was more just in, in the sense of wanting people to know that there's okay. somebody out there who is just like them. And, um, but again, everybody has different comfort level with that and that's okay. You know, yeah. I mean, Right. Certain no. people feel they need to not tell anybody. And that's, that's okay. As long as I would always just say, it's important that you find somebody that you can tell um, a group of people who understand, you know, to connect. Right. Sure. Yes. So, um, wow. Okay. Tommy, <laughs> um, I know that your story is um, cause I've heard it uh, and it's probably in and out of recovery. Um, very similar in some ways to Nate's, but if you had to share, um, when was when was the biggest aha moment for you that everybody is going to just walk away until you find your own way? Like when when did you finally choose recovery? So. So again, my name is Tommy Streeter. I'm the community outreach coordinator for Fort Wayne Recovery in Allendale. And I mean, you said it, Michelle, Nate and I do have a very similar story. Like I, I started getting high when I was 12 years old also. Um, I did end up getting sober at 25. So it just, you know, it, it started with smoking weed and it just progressed. I also got um, injured playing football in high school and was given a bunch of prescription painkillers. Um, and, you know, that eventually turned into an IV heroin addiction, you know, very similar to Nate. The first time I went to treatment 
was in 2014. Um, I was 21 years old. I went to this place in Goshen that, you know, we didn't know this at the time, but it wasn't an actual treatment center. It was basically just a, a farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere in Goshen. And I was there for like three days. I had my cell phone and I had somebody bring me a bag of heroin. And this was also on Sunday, which was visiting day. So my mom and dad were there, which that was the last thing on my mind. You know, I could only think about how sick I was and what I was going to do about it. So, you know, I had someone bring me this bag of heroin. I took it down to the basement. I did way too much of it and I ended up overdosing. And my dad is the one who broke down that door and found me laying, you know, my lifeless body laying on the ground. My mom and dad were both there. And, you know, at the time I thought, and I think my whole family thought, okay, that's going to be enough. Like he's not ever going to do this again because of what just happened. He, you know, shouldn't be alive. You know, back then the paramedics didn't just carry Narcan like they do now. So there was no Narcan. The paramedics told my mom and dad that I was dead and I ended up waking up for some reason. And I mean, I, I told myself like that was it, you know, that was enough. You know, that was the point that I'm not ever going to go back to this again. Well, the mistake that I made there was I thought like that event alone, that was just going to stop me from ever wanting to get high again. You know, I didn't start working a program. I didn't complete mm. treatment. I just went home and um, kind of did my own thing and thought that was going to last. And it only lasted for about a month that I was getting high again after that. And that just, you know, it progressed over time like it does. I went to treatment six or seven more times after that. I was, you know, homeless for the majority of my adult life because my mom and dad had kicked me out of their house multiple times after I stole, you know, who knows how much money from them, thousands of dollars, I'm sure. Um, you know, pretty much ruined every relationship and friendship that I had, lost every job that I had ever gotten, um, every car, you know, everything. I had absolutely nothing. And even that was never really enough to make me stop, you know, multiple overdoses at least six or seven times. Um, but the last time, what, what really, you know, what stands out to me the most, um, I also had a hard time with the higher power. Um, you know, some of you know my mom, she's got MS and a couple other health issues she was diagnosed with in 2012. So, you know, that combined with how terrible my life was, I kind of blamed God for that. And I, my mindset was, I don't know if there is a God or not, but if there is, I'm not very happy with him because my life is terrible and my mom is sick and, you know, all these other things. But the last time I went to treatment, um, I went down to Indy and this was about three years ago. And I walked into this treatment center that I've been at three times before. I walked into my room and I just kind of like fell on the ground and you know, this was after the whole last year where I was, you know, I was starving. I was malnourished. I looked terrible, didn't have food. Like I had never been this emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually drained ever in my life. Um, and so I walk into this room and I kind of just fell down and I was like crawling to my bed and I like pulled myself up onto my bed halfway. So I was on my knees basically. And everyone had always told me, that when you pray, you should get down on your knees because it shows some action. You know, you're actually, you're not just laying there praying. And I had never really tried to pray seriously or anything like that. But I just like, that was it. I finally was like, okay, I can't do this on my own. I've tried over and over and over again. Like I need help. I, you know, I had always told myself that I'm a heroin addict and I'm going to die a heroin addict. And I had accepted that. Uh, my mom had accepted that. My whole family had accepted it. They knew it was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. And in that moment, I just decided, you know what, this is not how I want to die. I don't want to live like this anymore. And I just, I asked for help. I asked God to help me. 
Um, didn't know exactly still, you know, didn't know exactly what God was or how that was going to work, but something just, you know, kind of changed overnight. You know, I woke up the next day for one, I was able to fall asleep that night, which was a miracle in itself, considering how sick I was, but I just woke up the next day and I felt way better than I should have. Um, so I stayed at that place for about four more days. And then I went to this other treatment center. And when I went to this other treatment center, this was, I think my seventh or eighth time in treatment. It was a fairly new treatment center down in Indianapolis. And a lot of the people that were working there didn't have a lot of experience in this field and me just being in treatment, you know, so many different times I kind of did. I knew how, I knew what treatment looked like. I knew what it was supposed to look like. And um, so I would go to like the group sessions that we had and I would always volunteer to read whatever needed to be read. I would always be one of the first people to answer the questions. And one day after we did that, there was a couple people that came up to me and they were like, Hey, what you said really helped me out. Like you helped me understand this. And you know, this, this old guy, I think he was like 65 years old. Like he came up to me and he was like, I never would have thought that I could learn something from someone who was 24 years old. And he gave me a hug and that feeling kind of just, you know, it filled that, like that void that I had always felt that I tried to fill with drugs. Like just that feeling of knowing that something that I did or said helped somebody that kind of filled that void that I had felt my whole life. And I mean, ever since, yeah, I mean, ever since then, I've just kind of been chasing that feeling, you know, when I was seven months sober after that treatment center, um, I was about seven months sober. I got certified as a recovery coach. The the classes were offered to me. So I took them. Um, I ended up working at that treatment center that I was at for about a year. Um, And it, you know, that just progressed into, you know, what I do now. Wow. Wow. What a great story. And Amen. And I, the parallels, um, so often I tell moms, like, you need to find your own identity and recapture your purpose. Because when you do that, um, and you can um, make, make pur- purpose your pain in some way, which is what you did, they recover too. Yeah, um, absolutely. But getting there is, is really, really hard. Well, thank you for sharing that. There's so many parts of that that, um, wow, just can make me emotional. But I'd like to, I'd like to learn a little bit more about Fort Wayne recovery, and in general, you know, just um, moms have some questions about, you know, what what they need to look for in recovery. So, for their children. Um, so one of the things I want to point out, though, is that you're in the Midwest. Uh, our group here at Moms Letting Go um, are from other countries as well, like Canada, Australia. We have some um, in all different parts of, of the U.S. too. And so some places, you know, some moms can't get to Fort Wayne Recovery. But I do, I'm going to ask some questions about Fort Wayne Recovery, but some of them might be a little more general too. Um, in that some moms are, are kind of adding questions in the Facebook feed too. So um, let me just, so it, at Fort Wayne Recovery, do you, what levels of care do you help with? Is it, Do you have a separate detox facility, am I correct? Yeah, so our detox facility is in Auburn, which is just about 20 minutes north of Fort Wayne. Um, and that's detoxing residential. So that's anybody that's coming in who, you know, needs to come off the drug safely medically um, also gives them good separation from their drug of choice and things and maybe some outside influences for um, a certain period of time 
so that their body can number one heal and number two that their brain can adjust and um, kind of return to uh, I mean their new normal if you would um, so that they can begin to receive um, some therapy they do receive some therapy up there but obviously when people are at detox and residential it's um, what they pick up and hold on to is few and far between. <laughs> right. So, and, and just to clarify for, to moms, like some drugs they don't have to detox from and others they, they do. And then the period of time uh, that they have to detox can vary depending on if it's alcohol. So what... Is it true, like certain drugs they can't detox or shouldn't try to detox on their own? Um, which ones are those? Uh, alcohol is, no, is one. Uh, benzodiazepines, so that's your Xanax, your Ativan, your Librium, your Klonopin, your Valium. Um, those are the two that, you know, really you should not, from a medical standpoint, try to detox yourself because you could have a, a seizure. It could be fatal, potentially. Um, for someone trying to come off on their own. Um, and then, you know, opiates, obviously, you know, opiate withdrawal likely will not kill you. Um, however, it's incredibly difficult to get to the opiate withdrawals on your own without any assistance. Um, and what we see with the deadly part is typically where people come in um, and they get through maybe day two, three on their own, their detox at home. And then it gets so bad that they go and use while well, they try to use the same amount they were using two, three days ago. And I mean, with the fentanyl out there, it, I mean, yeah, they'll die. Yeah. That's what happened to me when, when I went to treatment that first time. I didn't know, you know, it had been two or three days and I was so sick. My mindset, and I, you know, I was 20 years old. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was like, I'm so sick right now. I need to do more than I would have done three days ago. And that's what, you know, ended up almost taking my life. Yeah. Thank, thank you for explaining that because I've heard that. I've heard that before and it does always make me nervous when somebody first gets out of jail because when they're in jail, they're abstaining and they think they, you know, can use the same amount and that's what happens. So, um, and then, so from detox, then they would come and depending on what their drug of, you know, uh, they're using, substance they're using, then they would, um, come into your program and is that a php yeah so we have uh so we so you know first they would be in detox and then the second part of that is residential residential which is just basically you're in the detox unit but you're not receiving meds um and like you talked about there are certain drugs like cocaine uh, methamphetamine uh, other amphetamines where likely somebody may not have a physical uh, sickness when they're coming off of it but there is a severe psychological withdrawal that comes through. And we always recommend that people start in residential, mainly so that they can separate themselves from their drug of choice for at least a week or two, you know, usually two weeks at a minimum um, to kind of let their brain recalibrate and get through some of those initial um, severe cravings. You know, the phenomena sure. of craving starts it's very hard for them to be stable in an outpatient environment. Um, but the next level, yes, is partial hospitalization. You know, and I always tell people the word everybody picks out is hospital. There's no hospital involved. Um, that's what the insurance company's named it. Why? I don't know. Um, so so but our, when, when they're mm -hmm. in res, if it's just to pause a second, if they're in residential then, and they're, they're working with a doctor then um, to detox on some meds, when they come to residential, 
are they typically on like Suboxone for cravings, depending on what their drug of, you know, what their substance was that they were using, or are they getting the Vivitrol shot? Is there anything that, that they give them to help with those cravings? Yeah, I mean, typically, um, we, we try to we try to use utilize um, naltrexone and Vivitrol as much as possible. Um, you know, typically at Fort Wayne Recovery, there are not many people that are on continued maintenance of methadone or buprenorphine. Um, it's typically just Vivitrol and naltrexone if, if 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 that's you know if that's what's deemed appropriate. Okay, and. So then when they go to residential, though, they continue to work with a psychiatrist or the doctor that's, that's there. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, we, we have a psychiatrist at both facilities. Okay. Um, so, so many moms, and the reason I kind of stepping through this is that so many mm -hmm. moms don't understand the difference between which one, which is which. And so uh -huh. then from PHP, um, I mean, residential, and um, so are there certain marks um, milestones that they have to achieve before they move to PHP from residential? PHP is more just getting them uh, physically and mentally stable. Um, so, I mean, usually it's just a time period where we, you know, they have patient care meetings on a weekly basis with the, the director of nursing, the case manager, and a therapist to assess how they're progressing mentally, physically, emotionally, um, to make sure that they're, they're stable and ready to move to the next level of care. So those, that's kind of the marker. It's very individualized okay um, with each person as much as possible and another thing about you know the inpatient setting is a lot of time you know people are having trouble with sleep and anxiety and depression so you know me for example i was never prescribed anything when i was out using heroin so you know there would be a doctor in there that i would meet with and a nurse practitioner and they would you know prescribe me these new medications and you know if you're in there for, whether it's you know, whether you're detoxing or not you know that residential stabilization period is very important to make sure that you're going to react well to any new meds that you may start gotcha. um, especially if you're going to start like naltrexone or something there are some people that have you know allergic reactions to them so we just want to make sure that they're you know physically stable especially before they move from residential to that outpatient php level of care gotcha Perfect. Okay. So then how long will they stay in PHP? It varies. Um, PHP stays are typically four to six weeks is, is typical in an ideal world. Okay. And then they go into an IOP? Yeah. So four to six weeks, partial hospitalization generally. And then intensive outpatient is anywhere from eight to 12 weeks, um, ideally. Um, and then from IOP, they go to just cold OP, which is just outpatient, which only lasts about 30 to 45 days. When we're stepping someone from intensive outpatient to just outpatient, uh, typically they've hit pretty much all the mile markers on their treatment plan that they've created with their therapist. They have a very good uh, support, sober support system they've built up. They probably have, um, if, if they're doing 12-step meetings, they probably have a sponsor in a home group, um, something like that. You know, they, they've done most of their, their core curriculum work as well. So do they stay physically in the same place from residential PHP to IOP or do no, they move? So the location is, so they, they do detox and residential in the same building. Oh, okay. Um, and they, and so the difference between out, inpatient just simply is defined as you receive services where you sleep. Outpatient is simply defined as you receive services where you don't sleep. So uh, uh, residential and detox are, you know, inpatient and then partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient 
are technically outpatient levels of care. So, um, but when they go to PHP or IOP or OP, um, we do have sober living. And that's, that, so that kind of can be a continuation of residential. However, it is a much uh, less intense version of residential. They have more freedoms and things like that. Gotcha. And is your program faith-based? No, we don't have a specific uh, faith that we have our people subscribe to, but we're open to all faiths. We highly encourage a spirituality aspect. Um, we have people that come through that are Christian. We have people that come through that are Muslim, Buddhist, um, atheist, uh, agnostic, all kinds of backgrounds. And do you follow a 12-step program or do you use like smart recovery? Wh which program do you use in your um, our meeting? Clinical, our, clinical, our clinical curriculum, you mean? Yes, thank you. It's, it, it's okay. Yeah, it, it's matrix model. So it's a combination of, of many modalities of treatment. So we have, you know, CBT, um, DBT, um, we have uh, EMDR for trauma therapy. We do, we're heavy with that. Um, we do MRT, which is a 12 step, but it's not a traditional 12 step. It's, is it, is it other 12 steps in MRT or is it 15 or something? I think it's 12. I'm sorry. Yeah. So MRT, there are 12 yeah. steps, but it's not like AA. So as far as 12 steps and smart recovery and celebrate recovery is all concerned, we highly encourage people to find outside support groups and get heavily involved in them. Uh, whether they choose to do, you know, AA and a um, refuge recovery, which is like Buddhist recovery, smart recovery, celebrate recovery, which is a 12 step for Christians. Um, do something is what we say and, and sure. get, get, a, get a support network of people who you trust and you feel that you can rely on. And we have them practice that while they're in our program. So that way, when they step out the door, um, you know, everybody has a plan, you know, and then they step out. And if you haven't practiced that plan, likely, and it's not just for people that are in recovery, but anybody in general, right? If we don't practice our plans, we generally don't follow through with them. So, um, yeah. And, and I always tell moms, you know, establishing new habits oh my gosh. time, even for us. So if you try something once mom and it doesn't work or, or, you know, you just can't follow through with it, then don't give up, try it again. Um, so, what was that? Oh, so you talked about EMDR. So do you, well, two questions first, let me go back. From the time a person comes into detox and then leaves to go to sober living, um, what's your average time there um, between that for, I know it's probably varies depending on the person, but could you give an average? For the, the time, the amount of time they spend at the inpatient facility? Yeah, well, Okay, so maybe, um, well, is, does the total program include sober living arrangements too? Um, since we offer them, yes, it does. Um, oh, you know, okay. the whole time someone is in, if they're in our program, if they're in PHP, IOP, or OP, they can live in our sober living. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, but it, so the sober living isn't mandatory either. You can live at home, you know, if you have a home or, you know, if you haven't, totally destroyed your relationship with your parents like I did and they're still willing to let you stay at home but we do encourage sober living just for that extra peer support the right. extra accountability um but yeah the you know the inpatient phase is 21 to 28 days and then Fort Wayne recovery can be four to five months mm -hmm. so a total of four to six uh, months generally okay. uh, is is from if you go from detox all the way to outpatient you know and even after that we don't even say graduate we just say move to the alumni phase because we okay. have a pretty robust alumni program too. 
Oh, okay. And that's that's free and that's forever. <laughs> yep. Okay. Um, so how how often though does somebody just leave after two days or two weeks? Like, you know, what happened to my son? I don't know. He was there a week or two. Um, how often does that happen? It, it varies, you know, I mean, um, it happens, but I would say maybe, I mean, so what we try to do is we put up as many roadblocks as possible to, to keep someone from just walking out the door. Obviously, no one's held against their will. Um, but, you know, say that, you know, uh, someone has a loved one that they sent to us. And typically, we're in pretty good contact with the family and we, we keep them um, up to date on every step of the process as much as possible. Um, and we would have them sign, obviously, with their consent, they sent a release. Uh, the, the, the patient would. Right. Um, so what we would do probably is sit down with the patient. They're saying, I'm leaving immediately. So, okay, hold on a second. Let's talk about this. Let's, let's play the tape forward. Let's, yeah. let's think about where we're going to go. And then we would get mom, dad, whoever on the phone and say, Hey, um, Jimmy is talking about leaving. Would you be willing to get on the phone with him and talk to him? You know, and we have kind of direct the family to uh, keep their boundaries. So we do everything we can to block and uh, somebody leaving us medical advice. But I would say, I mean, we have a completion rate, I think of about like 75%. Um, so I would say 25% of people at somewhere along the line leave uh, before they're ready, whether it be um, them walking out on their own um, or sure. them being asked to leave for, you know, and it's, it's hard to get, it's hard to get removed from our program. If you're removed from the program, it's usually because we've asked you to do something five, six, seven times. You failed drug test five, six, seven times. We try to be as lenient as possible and treat everyone as an individual. So, you know, if somebody fails a drug test, we typically approach them. And if they're like, hey, yeah, I messed up, you know, here's what happened. We're like, great, let's let's keep going. Um, but if right. somebody's like, no, screw you. <laughs> I'm, yeah. You know. yeah, you can't really do much about that. I do, I do have moms in the group who have, you know, gone to taking their child someplace, not, not where you are, um, paid $35,000 for the first month and the child left after two days and did yeah. just what you said. I'm not staying here. And they never got their money back. Like, yeah. How, so how, what do you do about do, stuff we, like that? Well, we do a financial agreement before they come in and everything's laid out in writing as a contract and you get your money back on a per diem rate. So you know, say, so, uh, say somebody comes in. So first of all, one month with us would never cost 35,000, first of all, um, <laughs> inpatient or outpatient. Um, and so what happens is say, say somebody comes to Fort Wayne recovery, uh, and pays, you know, 10,000 for a month of PHP. Right. So what we would do is set up a contract that says, okay, if they come in for the intake and they do their biopsychosocial assessment, and their intake and all their paperwork, then we say we keep like $1,000 or $2,000 for the intake and the fee and all that stuff, right? Get everything set up. Um, then every day after that, until a certain date, you will get a certain portion of your money back if they decide to leave. So then it's just counted, like I said, as a per diem rate. So like, you know, and maybe five, it goes down like uh, five or $400 a day for every day they're there at up to a certain point, you know? Right. That's great. And, and it's, it, it just reminds moms who are watching this, you know, whenever you're um, researching programs, that's a really good question to ask. Um, because, you know, not, not all places are the same. And yeah, um, get, get things in writing. Yeah, 
Right. That's true. And, but it's such an emotional time that usually, oh, yeah. you know, by the time they get their child there, it is, um, they're just so glad. They feel like they've just finally saved their lives. They, they aren't expecting their child to leave or things to, they just don't expect it and nor do they want it, of course. So, um, so are you an insurance only facility? Is that how Fort Wayne recovery works? Primarily, yes. I mean, we take uh, mostly insurance policies there, you know, through people's employers, typically. Um, obviously, we do have an out-of-pocket uh, rate that people can pay. But um, yes, primarily we're insurance. And, you know, so like if somebody, say you had somebody reach out to us, they reach out to us, uh, tell us who their loved one is. Um, and then what they would do is send us their loved one's insurance information. And then we run a verification of benefits. So we actually contact the insurance company. Uh, and there's no obligation at that point. There's no fee. There's nothing hidden. Um, it's just, it's literally, we just reach out, we get a spreadsheet of, you know, what the insurance will and won't cover. And then based upon that, we have an act, we have an accurate idea of what their deductible out-of-pocket maximum is um, and have a pretty good idea too, of what kind of levels of care that we'll be able to obtain. And then we, well, so what we do after that is we verify the benefits and then we have the, the loved one, the individual, whoever it is do what's called a pre-screen or a pre-assessment, which is like a 15, 20 minute over the phone yeah. assessment. It just gives us a snapshot of what's going on. And that's pretty much our admission process. I gotcha. Okay, great. Yeah, I remember those assessments. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, you guys get a whole earful. Do you, do you always get the truth though in those assessments? No, no. <laughs> rarely. <laughs> rarely do we get the whole truth. Yeah. yeah, mom. Mom tells us Jimmy's been drinking two fists a day. Jimmy says he has a couple beers like twice a week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, oh, so it's interesting. So usually, moms, uh, you get more out of the moms than you do the client. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, how do you help um, clients that do? You, well, two questions. So much of what I read is that um, trauma is such a huge impact on. Um, those who struggle with substance use disorder. And when that trauma um, is just so stuck, you work, you use EMDR, but are, what other, what other, so one, how prevalent do you see that in your um, clients? And two, how do you treat that? I mean, so trauma, um, when people think of trauma, they think of maybe like a scene in a war movie where there's, you know, mortars going off and gunfire um trauma can be anything that has a lasting impact on your brain and uh, uh, it could be that your your uncle or your father or your mother at four years old said um you'll never amount to anything uh, that counts as trauma so almost everybody that comes in has some kind of trauma and obviously to varying degrees um so you know we, we try to address that with every single person that comes in obviously they have to be willing to go there um but it is something that is assessed uh fairly um fairly thoroughly. And, uh, you know, we, we do use EMDR, pretty much all of our therapists are EMDR trained, you know, Margaret Coates is our clinical director and she trains people all around the state and, and all around the country for, uh, EMDR. Really? Yeah. She's she trained me. She could. Yes. Yes. She does really? workshops I, all the time. I, I thought you, uh, had to be a doctor. No, okay. I mean, I think I'm pretty sure. I mean, you may have to have some kind of licensure clinically. Um, yeah. But I mean, I'm sure you could still take a training probably and they'd be happy to educate you at least. I mean, you may want a licensure and maybe like an insurance policy if you're gonna treat people. 
Well, no, I, I'm not. I, it's really not on my to-do list right now. No, I know. I'm right now. But, um, um, yeah, so we do. We address trauma, you know, and um, we, we are also, our therapists are in the process of becoming RRT uh, certified as well, um, which is another uh, form of trauma therapy. Uh, uh, frustratingly, we um, had the training set up for pre-COVID uh, and it's all been shut down. We've been waiting for a year and a half to get the training back online. Oh, you called but, it RRT? What did you yeah. call it? RRT, yeah. What does that stand for? I cannot remember. I apologize. Okay. I, I get right. so many acronyms thrown at me on a daily basis. I, yeah, that's all right. I, I'll look it up. You know, I, I just want to hop back to insurance for a minute because the sure. other day I was listening to somebody talk about, you know, how expensive recovery is and she recommended that moms take out an insurance policy for their addicted loved ones um, who are homeless and um, you know just so that they can get better care what I mean what are your I know it's it's just your opinion but what are your thoughts about that well it depends on what they're talking about as far as insurance I mean uh, you know, obviously, if your child is under the age of 26 and, and you have insurance through your employer, through a family member's employer. No, this, be, these are moms that are older. These are older okay. adults. Older children, sure. Um, it, that's tough to say because if you have the resources, potentially, but, um, you know, some of the marketplace, because it would be a marketplace policy, essentially. Um, and a lot of them are basically uh, AMBETTER or MHS, at least in this part of the country. Yeah. Um, and you have to be very careful because some of them don't have substance use disorder benefits, okay. or you could, I know some people that spend like $800, $900 a month on a policy for their loved one, and they still may have an $8,000 deductible and a $16,000 yeah. out of pocket maximum. So you, it's, it's all okay. very, depends on what you can get. Um, yeah. and a lot of places are not in network with marketplace policies or out and a lot of the policies don't have out of network benefits. So it. It, it depends. Um, it would be worth doing some research in, but uh, I mean, it, it could end up costing quite a bit of money, just as much as some places would be for a cash pay if you just. Yeah, that's true. Work. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, we have a couple women here on the call. Um, Anne or Lucretia, do, do either of you have any questions for Tommy or Nate? I'm here, Michelle. I'm, this is Sandy oh. Carmichael. Hi, nice Tommy. Hello. Hi, um, I just want to, I really want to give you guys a shout out because you just saved my son's life, honestly. Um, I know he did a lot of hard work, but yeah. without the phone call to Tommy, um, I don't know where he would be. And um, I just thank you, um, your therapist. Um, she was amazing and she um, talked with us. She had meetings with us with Ryan and um, she was just fabulous. And all of you are fabulous. And he continues to um, love you guys. And um, just, I don't know, I cannot say enough good things about the program. He had done a year of um or over a year of celebrate recovery he had been sober for over a year and so i i think what you said I believe it was nate that um through that time what he said when he started drinking again was it was really hard to start drinking again because i knew 
what I shouldn't be doing. And I knew some things about recovery. And so not only was he, you know, doing, doing things that he shouldn't, knew he shouldn't be doing, but he was feeling guilty and he knew that he wasn't in recovery. So there was more of a rub there. Um, and yet his brain was so sick. And so um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, he's still on a journey. He will always be on a journey. Um, but I, I just think you guys are amazing. And um, so thank you very much. I cannot. Well, he needs that, he needs that yeah. uh, constant talking. Yeah, and, and you're right. He he needs that constant group surrounding him. And he, he told me, he said, mom, I will have to go to these meetings the rest of my life because it's like oxygen and water. Mm -hmm. I just have to have it. Yeah. And so you've done it's tremendous connection. work with him. Yeah. It's connection. Thank, Thank you so you, much. Yep. Love you guys. We're all just very grateful to be in a position to try to help. Yeah. Yeah. You're alive. Yes. <laughs> um, so I think there's a movie out right now called, is it Buying Bodies or Body Body, body, brokers. body brokers? Body Brokers. So yep. what kind of questions can mom, should moms ask to ensure that they, you know, they aren't working with, one of my friends in this uh, business too, if you call it this business, but this ministry is, she says, if you go, like if somebody's really sick and uh, with a substance and they Google um, treatment centers, they will start putting these wrong ones in front of them. And then they have people calling them saying, Hey, we'll fly you here. And then it's kind of like this whole setup, right? So what kind of questions can moms ask to ensure that that doesn't happen? Yeah. I, so, you know, I think one of the safest things that you could do, at least, you know, especially if you're in this area, if you're in, you know, Northern Indiana or Indiana at all, you know, we, we are happy to have people come meet us, sit down with us, see our facility, meet some of our staff members, you know, yeah, just, you know, we're make appropriate referrals if we're not the right treatment center. So, you know, I just, I think that's one thing. And if that's absolutely not an option, um, you know, there's other questions that you can ask that Nate can, but you know, one of the things that we try to do is just, we're very open with people. Like if you want to come meet us, see who we are, what we're about, um, we, we always encourage that. And so, I mean, that could even be a question, like, can I come visit right. the facility? Um, you know, if you're in Indiana and you're talking to someone who wants to fly your kid to Florida or California, that's, it's not, it's not necessary because there's options around here. You know, there's, there's no reason to go across the country. Plus we believe that the family aspect of recovery is very important. You know, we want the family to be involved. And if you're you know, a five or six hour plane flight away, that's kind of tough to do. Right. And there's always Zoom, right? I mean, right. and true. so, you know, even if they're not like, even if they're an hour away and you, you can't get there, you know, you can always Zoom to meet. And I think what you're seeing is that they should have at least a willingness to show you a staff. And, um, and so obviously you're a dual diagnosis facility and that, you know, you treat the mental, the, the person, the mental uh, health aspect, as well as the addiction. Yeah. Um, that's another really good question and, and to know. Um, yeah. And I can even add to some of the stuff. I mean, you know, one thing Tommy and I have experienced a lot of here and, you know, we, we've worked very hard to clean it up in this area. Um, like if you go on Google, like you said, Michelle, and you type in um, 
uh, Fort Wayne, Fort Wayne treatment. Um, there'll be, it'll say there's 25 treatment centers in Fort Wayne. Um, and you'll say, well, there's five treatment centers on DuPont Road. My goodness. Um, well, if you drive to half those locations, uh, it's an empty building. <laughs> and if you call the number, it'll go to somebody in California and they'll say, hello, this is so-and-so with treatment, whatever treatment network. And you'll say, hey, I see your facility in Fort Wayne. Is it closed? They'll say, oh, yeah, that facility is not open yet, but we have a sister facility that's open in California. Um, and we'd be happy to send you out there. Um, and they'll pay for your flight. And uh, if they don't ask a lot of questions, then, I mean, that's also a red flag. Because um, some of the things like, you know, these body brokers, they get paid per head. So in, in other words, they get paid per person they put in treatment, right? So a lot of times they're not super concerned on whether your insurance company will uh, take the policy or, or if they'll pay or not. They just want to get somebody in a bed so they can get paid. Um, and they're, they'll happy to stick you with the bill. At, if they'll send you the bill afterwards um, if, if it doesn't pay. Um, or if they offer you money or offer your loved one money, it's important that you uh, make sure that your loved one should not accept uh, large sums of cash from anyone who's putting them in treatment. That's where they get into a lot of trouble is so say that you have a child and they say, okay, Jimmy, send me your insurance policy and Jimmy will send them their insurance policy or his mother will, and they will go to their list of treatment centers in California, Arizona, Colorado, wherever. Texas um, and say, okay, I have this policy here. Who wants it? And they'll say, I'll give you 4,000 for it. And I'll give you 6,000. And so then they'll call Jimmy and they'll say, Hey, Jimmy, I got a place for you. And Jimmy says, well, I don't want to go to Texas, Bob. And Bob says, well, uh, I'll give you a thousand dollars if you go do 30 days in this treatment center. And so then he says, okay, fine. I'll go to Texas. So then he pays him the money. He goes to Texas. Then he gets out of treatment. He gives a thousand dollars. What do you think Jimmy's going to do? <laughs> Jimmy's going to go get drunk or high, right? And then right. so Jimmy calls Bob again when he runs out of money. And they do this over and over again until Jimmy's insurance company says, no more. Okay. Wow. Um, you're cut I, off. Oh, and, uh, that's they use up their insurance benefits. So um, it, it also, you know, like Tommy said, reach out to somebody you know who may be in the insurance or in the uh, treatment network. Uh, ask questions. Hey, do you know this person? Google the place. Um look at reviews. Um, it, the problem is it's very difficult to tell uh, over over right. the internet and over the phone uh, who's who and what's what, you know. Um, it, I mean, go ahead. For moms in this group, um, we have a mom, Pam Lanhart, and she vets programs. And she's like, oh, I need one in the Midwest. So I gave her your number. Oh. I don't know if you guys ever connected because she's really busy. But yeah, we need more people like that, right? Yeah, we do. And so, um, also, Ann said, SAMHSA's helpline. I'm probably saying that wrong, but um, yeah. yes, the, the uh, helpline. I will say, though, don't they, doesn't SAMHSA re recommend, like, um, state programs, too? And sometimes, like, state programs just cannot and do not give the same quality of care yeah, they, they do their best, but, um, you know, it, luckily there are more treatment centers now that are taking Medicaid, um, in Indiana, at least I can't speak for other parts of the country, but, um, it is becoming, uh, much easier to get people placed to have Medicaid. And I think everyone would like to be able to take Medicaid. The problem is you have to be very large and open a very large facility in order to spread out the cost of treatment. 
sure. um, policy. So we would like to take it, but unfortunately right now we're just not big enough, but we can always help place people who do have Medicaid, at least in the state of Indiana. And the problem is Medicaid is state by state. So um, right. if you have Ohio Medicaid, you can't come to Indiana, you have Indiana Medicaid, you can't go to Ohio. So okay. but luckily those programs are becoming more and more available. So did you, did you say you take Indiana Medicaid? We do not, no. not okay. at this time, not at this time. Not at this time. Yeah, is that something you hope to do? Yeah, we do, we do hope to do that. We hope to build oh. another facility at some point and hopefully take it, yeah. Oh, good, good. Um, Lucretia, did you have any questions? Go ahead. Well, yeah, uh, first of all, I do want to thank you, gentlemen, for taking the time to do this and praise God for your recovery uh, and the many people that you're able to help uh, I am in Arkansas, Arkansas, and that's where he got started too. Can you hear me? Uh, you're breaking up. Can y'all hear me? Bit. Okay. Okay. Um, let me know if I cut out. Okay. Um, football injuries, you know, and just uh, mixing with the wrong people. Um, you get out, you, you think you're an adult, you know, first baby mama, you know, he's got a daughter that's eight now. He just turned 29. Um, just his twenties were just awful. Like y'all's were, you know, trying to find yourself, I guess, in your place. And, um, um, I'm not for sure that he had any, uh, bad trauma. Um, he had a couple of friends over overdose and die. I mean, that's trauma in itself, but trying to find, love in the wrong places, I guess, you know, and trying to help these other two women. Uh, and he got sucked in himself, did meth, um, all kinds of op opioids, uh, just no telling what all he did. But uh, in and out of county jail, you know, they had his number. Um, finally, we had to, we couldn't deal with it. You know, he wasn't allowed to be there at our home. And, you know, he was homeless and just all the same stories, okay? So, and he took the rap for some um, stealing, some firearms and um, money from us. And he's been in prison for the last uh, year and a half, okay? He went up before the commissioner of the parole board today, this morning. And so he called me right before I got on this call. And he, he thinks that it, it went well. Uh, He'll give his opinion before the parole board and they'll make their decision. But uh, now that they've started opening up the restrictions, he uh, has been moved to another unit to do their drug program. I'm not for sure what it is, but it's supposed to be a six month program. So if they grant him parole, then he will be in this program and probably leave whenever that happens. Okay, my one of my questions is, um, do you um, do you have a payment plan? Uh, no, you just said that you don't do Medicaid yet, but do you accept, you know, inmates that's out on parole? Well, I mean, that would be on, you know, like it, that would basically be um, like a cash pay rate, probably, you know, pay out of pocket. Okay. Yes, I mean, if you wanted to pay out of pocket, you know, that's the really the only way you yeah. can do it. I mean, unfortunately, even if you had insurance, the insurance companies don't care. They would say, uh, you, how long has he been in jail? About a year and a half. 
a year and a half, they would say he's been sober for a year and a half. He doesn't need treatment. Well, we know that's crap, right? <laughs> um, well, that was going to be one of my other questions because abstaining is not recovery. Right. So there's been no, no program. I know he's, he's clean now, you right. know, and he looks the best that he's ever looked and uh, he's working out and, you know, he's, um, he loves the Lord and he's doing all of that stuff. And I've checked out a faith-based recovery mm -hmm. place uh, here in Arkansas that he could go to, which is a six months to a year program. Sure. which I think would be best for him. And I think a lot of people do relapse because when they get out of prison or out of their 10th program or whatever, they're yep. just wild, you know, right. uh, there's no structure there's, and they've got all this responsibility and they can't take it. And so they, they comfort themselves and they relapse. And I don't want that for him. Um, he's been in um, an other programs, you know, three months, that doesn't do anything, you know, a month, doesn't do anything so um have you had questions like that for people that are out on parole and what what would be your your insight in in for a mom to because we have several moms in this group that are in the same position mm -hmm. their child is just getting out of jail for some reason or another you know and they I think I think what you're asking is like what would they recommend? What do they what have they seen? Right. What what do they think would be give Joshua the best um, hope Recovery. for mm -hmm. out out in civility? I don't know what you call that when you go you know yeah. when you transition. Right. So what do you think, guys? I mean, you know, kind of what she talked about with the program that she found that's faith based that's six months to a year. Um, I think that's a great place to start. And um, even when he's finished with that, I don't know, quite know super well how uh, robust the network of uh, sober living homes in Arkansas is. But, uh, you know, we recommend even when people get done with our, like even they do six months in our program, that they go to another sober living for at least another six months, sometimes another year. Um, so the longer that he's receiving some kind of treatment service, um, some kind of accountability, the better. Um, so, I mean, I yeah. think that that program you talked about that's faith-based, that's six months to a year, um, I think that that's a great place for him to start as soon as he gets out. And then even once he's done with that, continue to look for other housing options that, you know, they call them, uh, you know, there's halfway houses, and there's three-quarter houses. Halfway yeah. houses are places that have like curfews. Um, and that's stricter. where he would have to go first sure. before okay. he went to this ministry program. It's called John 316. Okay. I've checked it out. I've called. I've talked to Pam. I've talked to uh, people that um, their child have gone through it. So I've checked it out pretty well. Um, and um, it, it sounds really, really good. They have counselors there and um, different programs, um, work programs. So I feel really, really good about that. Um, it sounds it's just excellent. trying to... It, it does, and oh, we're stuck, though, because I don't think that there's uh, any really good halfway houses or transitional houses for him to go to, and he can't come to, to us. He well, Lucretia, anyway. stay in the now, right? Like, if he gets through yeah. that place for that long, he will own it. You'll want him to own it, and it'll right. be him to find that, and trust me, he if if he's doing well he's going to want it for himself and he's going to be motivated to find that for himself too right i gotta believe right. that 
I don't know. I, I do. Yeah, I do. I, I do. So, yeah. <laughs> Tommy and I Nate. Do. I, I just I, didn't know if y'all had had any, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you have a great plan, you know. And um, I think, you know, one of the things that helped Tommy and I out a lot, at least me in particular, was like, even when I was done with treatment, you know, um, my family told me that I had to figure it out on my own still, you know. Um, so, I mean, I think it would be okay that even if he completes that six month to a year Christian program that he doesn't come live with you, you know, I mean, Oh no. Uh, it, yeah. And that's what I would no. encourage you to do that. Cause sometimes parents are like, well, he's doing really well. So we had to move back in. And I'm like, well, that's no. an easy place to get complacent. <laughs> no. No. My mistake a lot of times. Too. Right. Yeah. One step at a time. Uh, well, Absolutely. I appreciate you and appreciate your yeah, of course. time here. Thank you. Yeah, we're happy to help. Are, are you guys on a hard stop? Cause we went after two o'clock. No. No. Okay. So when I went to my Facebook and looked up questions, um, we were getting feedback from both places. I couldn't turn my sound off, so I, I can't go there. But um, if I have any other like follow-up questions, I can always like send them to you and, and then follow up with moms with answers. But um, is there anything, is there anything that I didn't ask that moms should, should be particularly um, careful about in your opinion when they're searching for uh, a recovery option for their child? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think kind of like what we're doing here is always a great place to start, like have a conversation with whoever their outreach person is or whoever's getting them into treatment. And if that person can't answer your questions, I would say, I want to talk to somebody who can um, and you want to see, uh, you, you want to know kind of what modalities of treatment they're using. Um, you could even ask them, I, I suppose, if they could send you an example of what kind of curriculum they're going to be doing, like, a, and also a daily schedule. Like, you know, if they have a lot of different um, examples of, of things that they're going to be working on with their people in writing and things like, so for us, we have people in our sober living fill out a, a daily schedule every day. Um, that accounts for every hour of the day. Number one, because most of us when we're out there drinking and getting high, we're not really, we don't like, time is not a concept we understand. Um, Tommy will tell you that I still struggle with the concept of time <laughs> and being on time. Um, but, you know, it, it helps too with um, people having a visual representation saying, okay, where does all my time go in the day? You know, and that's just one example of things we could send a family who's like, okay, I want to know what my child's going to be doing. And we could say, okay, here, Here's a sheet where they're going to be filling out a schedule every day. Here's a here's an overnight pass. Um, here is um, an example of a case management assignment. Here's an example of some of the assignments they'll be doing in their workbook. You know, um, make sure that they have a clinical program that seems like they've poured time and energy into, and not just you know bought some book online. Um, that that's a great place to start. Like I said, getting wow. details about the program. And if that's the good. person mm -hmm. you're talking to knows the program, like the back of their hand, you can tell that they're there and they're working with the people on a daily basis. Um, and, and they also understand the concepts and there's some real concepts, uh, uh, there. And it's also never bad, you know, if you want to ask for a virtual tour, like Tommy oh, yeah. said, we have an open door policy. I mean, so if there's a parent in the area or a family member, whoever, or a client who says, I want to come see your facility before we admit, we're fine doing that. And if a place says no, it's a big red flag. Um, you know, and also look up their people, get up and find out who their staff members are, look up their clinical director. That's one thing we found is just you Google somebody 
if they have a long rap sheet, (laughs) you know, if there's a bunch of stories in the New York times about them, you know, embezzling money from treatment centers, it's probably a good place to stay away from, you know, and you can find out a lot of things just through a simple Google search sometimes, you know? Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. And you know, the hardest, the hardest part too, for these moms is like, if they're helping pay for the, for the program, they want information going in. But at some point, they have to hand it over to their child and say, I know I did with mine. You know, when he, when he came home a year later, I, he was telling me, you know, what meetings he's going to go to and what he's going to do. And I said, whoa, you know, I'm not going to police this. Mm-hmm. I, it's not my job. I'm not going to do this, that. And he said, you're right. To thyself, you have to be true. But, um, and so they, they have to own that. And I, and I get it. But are there any words of encouragement you could give moms on how to let go? Because I'm all about how to let go without giving up um, and, and with just continuing to love your child. So how do you empower them in that role? Well, I mean, one thing we always talk about is, number one, the best thing people can do for themselves is like what you're doing here. Get a group with like-minded people who are uh, struggling through the same thing. So support groups are very important. Um, things like Al-Anon, uh, even Codanon, like Codependence Anonymous meetings, um, things like that, where you just get support and learn boundaries, because boundaries are number one. I mean, that's, I'm sure you've learned that, Michelle. I mean, yeah. it, if you don't have boundaries, you know, because, um, I mean, people are like, well, I could never do this to my child, but it, mm. you're, you're, you're battling the, the, the disease, not, not your child. So, you know, the disease doesn't like structure, um, and, and it doesn't like boundaries. All the thing it knows is more. So um, it's okay to not allow your child to stay with you. It's okay not to pay for things outside of treatment. Um, you know, not, I'm not saying let your child starve, but um, let them kind of struggle on their own. That's okay. And when they do get into treatment, um, you know, it, if you're paying for it, you have every right to want to be on a release and speak to a therapist. However, um, you know, outside of family sessions and maybe getting some updates once in a while, you know, um, you could, you could just have your own boundary where you say, you know, I know one of our therapists here talks about when he got into recovery. The only thing his mom would ask him when he got on the phone with her in the beginning, she said, if you can't tell me something you did today for your recovery, then we have nothing to talk about, you know, and that's okay. Wow. You know, because okay. if he was like, you know, I don't want to talk about that. That was her boundary. Yeah. Yeah. That was she'd, boundary. Be, right. yeah. she'd be like, okay, well, we don't have anything to talk about today. I'll talk to you tomorrow, you know? Um, so find out what your boundaries are, you know? And, um, at some point, you hope that they're going to take control like your son did and say, okay, I want to do this for me. But uh, it's a process and um, there's no perfect formula. You know, that's the thing. And there's no great answer for everybody, you know, for a universal answer for every parent watching. It's kind of just an, on an individual basis. But um, I would say also rely on the counselors at where they're receiving treatment. Um, talk to people that are like yourself and Al-Anon or whatever kind of support groups they follow. Um, it, it's a learn as you go thing, just like for those of us that are in recovery, right? We're going through the same journey, just different, different types of journeys in a way. So true. Um, yep. It's, it's learn as you go. You learn what your boundaries are. You learn what works yeah. for you. Um, but we, you know, the, mo- the most important thing is that you learn that, um, your child doesn't control your happiness, you know, and, uh, you know, you, you can be happy and, and live your life despite what they decide to do. Right. And that's the, that is what I love to 
you know, to help moms do find mm -hmm. that joy. What is that outside of them? And just one of the things that we used to do is we asked to speak to the counselor with Ryan once a week um, for a long time. Mm -hmm. So that was one of our boundaries. But and one final question and just put an idea in your head is, you know, you say you treat the whole family, but who is there to facilitate and help the parents in their recovery find their own life, find their own identity and purpose outside of what their child's doing? Do you have somebody in place that actually works with them or do you just refer them to meetings? Well, I mean, the, the therapist and the client will, will talk, work with them, but also we have a friends and family group that meets at Fort Wayne Recovery uh, the second and fourth Sunday of every month at 5 p.m. Okay. Um, and it's run by Jerry Gunkel and his wife, Bonnie. Jerry's been in recovery for 30 years and Bonnie's been in Al-Anon for 30 years. Awesome. Uh, and it's really kind of an introduction to Al-Anon and to other support groups. Um, and they kind of take the lead in working with families, but also Tommy and myself work with the families a lot Good. and we are happy to give them. We always, so people will say, what's, what's going to, what's, what can I do? That's going to help determine if my child's going to be successful or my loved one's going to be successful or not. I said, you working on you. That's <laughs> That's the best thing you can do right there. You go to a meeting, you, you get a counselor. Everybody has stuff to work on. The healthier that, you know, say if it's my child, the healthier that I get, the more likely it is that, that our relationship is going to get better, you know, right. and that their, their recovery is going to come first. Right. Thank you. Yes. That's so important. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much, Wow, This was really long. I was hoping it would, we could keep it to an hour, but every single minute mattered is there any mom here who has a question i don't want to like cut you off but i don't see anybody raising their hand or there's nothing in the chat so thanks so much guys and uh yeah i look forward to keeping in touch and um if there's any more questions coming in later i'll get with you on that on those okay sounds great michelle thank you thank you god bless take care see you bye